A reading from Hebrews. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Last Sunday, we made a case that when God looks at someone who is in Christ, he calls him a saint. And we talked about that, what, what that word that gets translated saint means is nothing more than holy one, which to connect the dots means that when we are in Christ, God looks at you and says, you are a holy one. Now, you might remember if you were with us last week, there was this mantra, let God be true and every man a liar. You may be here now going, I don't feel very holy. And you're probably right. It's probably true. But God says you're holy And that's ultimately what matters. And what we're going to be doing today and for the next several weeks is looking at how to fill out our holiness shoes. If God has put us into this thing called holiness, how do we actually come to live up to the name that is put upon us? Does that make sense? Now, throughout the Bible, there is this central idea that godliness and holiness is an intentional pursuit. This, in my opinion, goes so contrary to how most people think about their spirituality. I find that most people, when they think about spirituality and their walk with Christ, they think it's something that just happens to them. Here I am, and God, in his infinite wisdom and mercy, is just going to, oh, I feel like striking you with holiness today. And it becomes nothing more than a collection of serendipitous moments through the course of your life as you wait for the next hit to the next hit to the next. You've been there, right? You know what I mean? And it gets betrayed, doesn't it, in the comments that we'll often make when people will say things like, oh, I was just so inspired to, or oh, I was just so moved to, or, oh, I heard in this instance God speaking to me. And I'm like, really? I mean, God is speaking all the time. There ain't no mystery about it. To sit there and your bowels get moved, all right? Spirituality is a pursuit, And whenever someone comes and tells me stuff like this, I got to be straight. I always have like this, this, this inner reaction that goes, you spiritual pansy, get off your fat butt and get into the game because spirituality is not just about waiting for it to happen. It's like, seriously, do you just like wait to feel like doing your homework? I mean, is this how life works? For God, holiness is a pursuit And what the entire book of Hebrews is about is that to wait for spirituality to just happen to you passively is not only spiritually irresponsible, it is ultimately dangerous. Now, Gwen a minute ago read a section from Hebrews chapter 12, and it strikes at the heart of what holiness as a pursuit 
is all about. I'm going to flash some slides up here, but it's only going to be selections. If you'd like, I encourage you to follow along in a, in a, in a chair copy with me as well. But take a look at this again. The entire thing is situated in a sports metaphor. And the idea goes something like this. Every athlete is looking to win. Or maybe better put, every athlete is looking to finish and to finish well. Now, every athlete knows that the journey to the finish line is going to be hard. It's going to tax them, and it's going to demand things of them that they couldn't ordinarily give. And they know that if they don't keep their eyes fixed on that finish line, the struggle of training and the pain of the moment and the exertion that they're feeling will ultimately overwhelm them unless they know what they're actually running for. Have you ever began a workout routine only to get like a whopping 18 minutes in and go, yeah, I'm done, right? Because it's so easy, isn't it, in the moment to lose sight of what you're doing it for? And have you found that if you start breaking that focus for just a minute, the burden, the weight, the exertion, the pain, it's just too strong to get through. And so every athlete knows that they have got to grab every competitive advantage and shed off everything that can possibly hinder them so that they are able to finish this race. Which of you, when you start jogging, puts another 20-pound sack on their back and goes, this will be more fun, right? You know, or let's set the treadmill to like the eight incline as opposed to going... You don't do this because it's hard enough as it is. And every good athlete knows that if they are to finish well, they're going to have to train. They're going to have to be intentional. They're going to have to pursue it, and not just in the moments when they feel like it. It has to become a way of life. Now, start looking at what this writer to these Hebrew believers says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses... Throw off everything that weighs you down. And the sin which is looking to, to tangle you and trip you up. And run with endurance. The race marked out for us. Because the Christian life is a lot like a race. And it's hard. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. It is hard. And it's filled with hardship and suffering and pain. And so the writer says, so fix your eyes on the prize. Don't lose sight of the goal line. I didn't know any better way to translate this up here today. Look and fix your eyes on Jesus, the archagon and the teleoten of your faith. NIV might have something like author and perfecter, but author sounds like you're writing a book. It loses the sports metaphor. A word I like better is something like pioneer. He's the one who began the race. He's the one who blazed the trail in the race. He's the one that set the course for the race. He's the one that knows what this race is about from its inception. He is the beginner, the pioneer, the author, the starter the gun that goes off when you begin this thing called life. And more than that, he is the boss, and he goes, 10. 
It's the same word family that, that Jesus cries out when he's on the cross and he goes, it is finished. Except it doesn't just mean it's over. Like, oh, oh my God, I'm glad this is done. It means something so much richer than that. It means this is, this is accomplished. We, we've hit the goal. We've hit the finish line. It is completed. And the writer says this, this race called life is hard. So don't lose sight of the finish line. Because there's one who ran the race, who has began it, who has blazed the trail, and who has completed it. And there is one who is going to begin it in you and bring you to completion as well. And if you can keep that in your line of sight, maybe, just maybe, you'll run when the race is hard. This sports metaphor is what this passage of Hebrews is all about. And for the writer to the Hebrews, spirituality is an intentional pursuit. It is about training and endurance and conditioning and preparation. It is something to go after not something to just sit back and let happen to you. I am personally coming off Olympic fever. Um, in my house, if I had four separate satellite boxes and four separate screens, I would have every like, like alternate NBC channel showing every clip of the Olympics 24-7. It's odd. I'm not normally a sports watcher. But for those two weeks, I immerse deeply. Which means I can tell you like the back of my hands why I should eat at McDonald's and why I should bank at Citibank and a host of other things that I should do as well. There's one commercial that I absolutely love that I think speaks to the heart of what this is about and this idea of, of, of the intentional pursuit of godliness. You've probably seen it, but take a look. Every day, I spend three hours on weights, four hours on the slopes, and two hours doing this stuff, which leaves me approximately two minutes to get my banking done. So I use the City Mobile app to quickly check my accounts and pay my bills which leaves me about five seconds to kick back. That was nice. Okay, you know, I watch that commercial and I go, I would get tired watching you train nine hours a day, right? Let alone doing it. But do you get the sense that an Olympic athlete gets it? They know that if they want to finish well, it is going to require them to train. You know, I think every kid at some point has these ideas of like, man, I'd like to be an Olympic athlete. That looks like a lot of fun, right? To which I'm just like, um, yeah, I think if I'm just going to wait for Olympic athleticism to come upon me, I'm going to be waiting a long, long time. But now, think about this commercial critically. And tell me, did you notice something else? The guy that we saw was Ted Ligety. He competed in four events, all right? They were all skiing-related. How much of his training was actually on a ski slope? Did you notice that? Nine hours a day, and how does it go? For three hours a day, I lift weights. For four hours a day, I hit the slopes. 
And for two hours a day, I do stuff, well, like this. All right? Does it strike you as odd that over half of his training is spent doing things that are unrelated to his sport? This has become, I think, somewhat uh, common knowledge for us today. But this idea of cross-training is a relatively recent phenomena. The old school way of training was just this. If you're a runner, just go run. And if you want to be a better runner, run more. And then run more. And then run harder and faster. Except that what was happening is that, that coaches were noticing a couple of things. One was this. People who continued to do just the same thing over and over and over again were prone to various kinds of injuries, overuse injuries, um, um, undeveloped muscles in certain ways and, and, and overcompensated muscles in other ways that threw body mechanics and balance and flexibility and other things out of whack. But more than that, they were noticing something else. To just keep doing the same thing over and over again will ultimately bring you to plateau. And if they approached it differently instead, to train seemingly disconnected parts of the body in seemingly disconnected ways, somehow and in some way, it would ultimately make you stronger as a whole and help you push through plateaus to achieve levels in the sport that for you, previous to this, were impossible. Do you know what I mean? How many of you have ever in your spiritual life felt like you hit a plateau? Felt like you came to a place and no matter what, it just keeps buffering up against. I've learned this in my own, uh, my own life personally. My workout routine for the past 20 years has been about revolving through injuries. I started as a runner until I started to develop back and knee issues. So then I got into swimming, because that's a great low-impact sport, right? Until I blew up both rotator cuffs. Which got me into doing all kinds of weird things with like rubber bands like this for like four hours a day, and deep tissue massage, and inevitably weight training to correct imbalances that I had. Until I developed problems in my elbow and problems in my neck, which got me into biking. Which ironically developed different kinds of knee problems that led me to running again. And the cycle of my life and the cycle of my working out since the time I was 20 is just going, okay, that hurts, time for this. Okay, blew that out, time for this. And maybe by going through the cycle, I can somehow keep the blubber off to a reasonable degree and keep existing as a mildly healthy human being. But I've learned something else as well. If... I engage in all of those activities, or a cross-section of those activities simultaneously. My body doesn't get injured as much. If I do leg exercises and lift, I can run more. If I balance out running with swimming, I can go farther and faster. And the exact same thing is true of your soul. There are times in our spiritual walk and in our spiritual race where we hit these plateaus. And what I've come to find is that all of these odd things that God calls us into, 
These odd practices and these disciplines and, and, and these, these, these steps of obedience that seem somewhat arbitrary at one level, that seem dissimilar and disconnected to life, actually in some way breathe into us as a whole and strengthen sides of us that allows us to run the race that God has set out in a deliberate and more successful way. So for example, maybe you're here today and uh, you find yourself just always falling into sexual temptation. Maybe it's pornography for you. Maybe you, you just find yourself sleeping with your boyfriend or your girlfriend and you feel regret after it. You know you're trying to walk the path of God, but at the same time, I mean, and it's hard and, and, and you set up boundaries and you tell yourself you're going to stop and you fail again and again and you find yourself into the same pattern again and again and again. Whatever the example might be, we've been there, right? What people have discovered is that somehow by focusing on things that are disconnected with that temptation and struggling through that issue might work better in strengthening you over there. So for example, if I'm to fast and I deny myself a, a physical appetite, a physical hunger, it will inevitably make me stronger in the sexual arena. Does that make sense? It's why people give things up for Lent. Because the idea is if I sacrifice something over here, it inbreeds and teaches something in me to strengthen me to be able to sacrifice over here. It's why people go on pilgrimages. Because somehow by pushing through physical endurance, they can set themselves and poise themselves to push themselves through, through spiritual endurance as well. Because spirituality and holiness and godliness are a pursuit. And they require us to train for it. It doesn't just happen on its own. And training requires discipline, doesn't it? Look at how Hebrews goes on. He says, in your struggle against sin, you know how I... You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. You know how I read that? It's like God is saying, you want to stop. But there is so much more in you than you realize. There is so much more that you can still give. You haven't, you haven't resisted yet to this point, and you have forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. And he says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. And look at this key line, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. It's like he's saying spirituality is hard. The way of Christ and the way of the cross is not easy. And it's going to require you to prepare for what this race is going to have in store. 
And it's almost like he's saying, God is seeking to come down into the midst of it to train you. Did you ever work out? You ever train for something? And you can watch Rocky and get excited for it about like 90 seconds on your couch with a bag of chips. You ever do it? It sucks. It's hard. There's nothing glamorous about drinking raw eggs at four in the morning, all right? It just is plain hard. But by enduring that which is hard in training, when the race comes, you're able to make it, amen? And it's like God is saying, when you face hardship, don't see it as some kind of why me or, or why are you doing this to me, God? Or how can you be so mean to me, God? See it instead like this. As a coach who's training you because he knows what the course is like and he knows the glory that awaits and he knows what is within you and he knows in this life what you're going to have to face. And so he's training you, disciplining you as an athlete, like a son. This word discipline, it's, it's a bad word, isn't it? I mean, we hear discipline and I think it conjures ideas of punishment, of a reprimand. It conjures ideas of getting in trouble. Do you know that's not what the word really means? And it's not what it means here. I want to invite you to think about God in a different way today in light of this passage. I want to invite you to think about him as a coach. Now, imagine a coach who takes an interest in one of his students, in one of his athletes, in one of the people that he trains, who's got nothing but their best interest in heart, and he wants to see them shine. He wants to see them succeed. He wants to see them go to that starting line and finish well. He wants to build into their dreams and their hopes, and he knows the glory of what awaits, and he wants to help you realize it. Imagine a coach who isn't out there to injure you, who isn't out there to harm you, but is who's there to push you through the uncomfortable things of life, to push you from those times, through those times when it isn't easy because he knows if you can push through that. And if you learn how to push through that, there is something so much greater on the other side by far. And imagine that this coach is not just any coach, but it is like one of the premier coaches of the world. A person who set the world records in the sport. A person who pioneered the sport. Who knows everything about it inside and out. Who ran the race himself under conditions much harder than we will ever face today. Imagine a coach like that. And imagine the athletes that would want the privilege of training under someone like that. And in our self-indulged culture, I think we get the idea that, that coaches should be so lucky as to have someone like me or my kid. The world doesn't work that way. Talk to an athlete. The best coaches of this world select who they train. 
because they want to see that the people they train have what it takes. The people they train are worth their time. The people they train can carry on their legacy. And imagine a coach like that who takes interest in you. Despite the fact you're not the world's greatest athlete. Despite the fact that you're injured. Despite the fact that people have said you've been washed up from this and should hang up your cleats a long time ago. Imagine a coach like that come and finds you. He says, I want to train you. Because you thought that winning was off your record. But I want to show you how to win. And I want to be there with you every step of the way. I want to show you that that finish line is possible. And I'll show you that when you hit it, you can hit it strong. And I'm going to show you that as you're going through it, and you're tired, and you're hurting, and you want to give up, I'm going to show you that there's something worth pushing through, and I'm going to prepare you, and I'm going to train you. And I'm going to show you what it's like every step of the way. I'm going to be there cheering when you take your first steps. And I'm going to be there nursing you when you're injured. And I'm going to be there carrying you through it every step of the way. And you're going to fall. And you're going to fall. And you're going to fail. And you're going to fail. And your heartbreak is my heartbreak. But then, this is what spirituality is all about. This is what the pursuit of holiness looks like. It is God coming to train you, to push you, to point the way, to remind you of the goal.